time for Legally Speaking. Joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. Always great to be here. Lots on the agenda today. What's up first? Uh, there sure is. Uh, well, one of the uh, first things on the agenda, or the first thing on the agenda, I should say, um, is a decision that came out recently from the B.C. Court of Appeal uh, dealing with a constitutional challenge to a provincial statute called the Medicare Protection Act. Um, and uh, it's an important case, which has been going on for some time. It was brought by uh, Canby Surgery Corporation and a variety of uh, doctors and others there. Uh, and the issue in the case uh, involves some provisions of this B.C. Medical Protection Act uh, that effectively pre- prevent uh, private um, medical care in BC. Now, the Act doesn't outright ban that from occurring, uh, but what it does, and the sections that were challenged are two sections, section 17 and 18, that prevent any doctor who's registered under the medical services plan, which is virtually all of them, from charging patients anything beyond what the MSP will pay. So that, for example, is why the family doctor that's getting, you know, whatever they get, $25 to see somebody, uh, can't charge any more than that, um, unless they're not enrolled at all in the MSP program. And then another section, Section 45, that effectively prevents people from purchasing private medical insurance for anything covered under the medical services plan. Now, I should say for a moment, not all medical procedures are covered under the medical services plan, of course, right? Mm. There are all kinds of medical services that people need, like dental treatment or drugs, physiotherapy, or all kinds of things which aren't covered. It's not like if you need it, you're covered. It's just we happen to have come up with a list of medical procedures that we decided will be covered under the medical services plan. And so if they are covered, then these provisions would apply. And all of that's why if you would go to physiotherapy or you're going to buy drugs or you've got some something that doesn't involve, um, you know, something that happens to be listed under MSP, well, you pay for it privately or you get medical insurance or, you know, maybe through your work, for example, it might cover it. Now, the challenge that was brought in uh, court and then to this appeal was a challenge to uh, those provisions that I've just mentioned. Uh, a charter challenge, arguing that they violate Section 7, which is a constitutional right to life, liberty, and the security of the person. Yes. And the basis for that was just how long people are having to wait to get, in some cases, some very important medical treatment uh, for anything that's covered under the MSP program. We don't care how long you're waiting to get your uh, eyes fixed or your <laughs> you know, tooth repaired, but we do care about these things, apparently. Hmm. Uh, and there are some statistics that were before the trial judge and before the court of appeal that outlined just how much the medical uh, plan in BC is struggling to do even what it sets out to be the guidelines. Uh, and the way it works in BC is that they've set out these various priority uh, codes for just how serious your medical problem is. You know, priority one, two, three, four, well, three B, uh, four and five. Uh, And so, for example, the highest priority one, priority one, would be somebody who's suffering from severe pain and acute conditions with risk of permanent uh, impairment or, you know, um, something that's time sensitive. You might die if you don't get prompt treatment. Yes. All the way down to things like, you know, knee replacements or whatnot that may be very important for you but aren't going to kill you. Uh, And 
in BC, essentially the uh, MSP program is failing for all of those things, but to different degrees. Uh, but to give you an idea, the most acute uh, category, that's people with category one priority, severe pain, acute conditions, things that you might die from if you're not getting prompt treatment, 72.2% of the people who are in that category do not get treatment uh, within the uh, set out guidelines, which should be two weeks for that kind of a problem, right? This is really an emergency. Uh, and then they allow themselves, of course, much longer periods of time for things like knee replacements, right? Where people can be waiting, you know, at different times, there was evidence that their people were waiting 60 plus weeks for those kinds of things, right? It uh, depends. It varies from time to time, but a long time. Yes. Uh, and so the challenge was brought saying, hey, causing people to have to wait so long for this kind of treatment and preventing them effectively from being able to get private insurance or private treatment uh, is unconstitutional. That's the argument, right? Mm. And in some cases, the argument was people are dying, right? Yeah. They're waiting for treatment. They can't get it. Yeah. Now, I should say about that as well, this argument, the government's argument was, hey, we, we need to prevent a public system in order to uh, allow the government to prioritize people based on what they view as need for treatment, right? And not to have people who have money be able to get better treatment or faster treatment than people who don't have money, which is understandable. But of course, these provisions don't prevent people who are, are wealthy from getting immediate treatment, right? There's not many, you know, if Jimmy Pattison has a problem, which is a category one, I dare say he's probably not waiting around uh, for weeks for the MSP program. He's probably driving down to Seattle and getting treatment immediately and mm. paying for it. Yeah. What's really prevented by these uh, provisions are people who are middle class people from being able to get, for example, private health care insurance. That's what's really being stopped, right? Yeah. Because if you have lots of money, we have the safety valve of leave the country, go to the U.S. and get treatment immediately, right? You're, you're not, if you have a lot of money, going to wait around for, you know, 64 weeks to get your extremely painful knee fixed, right? Let alone waiting around for urgent cancer treatment beyond, you know, the recommended period of time. You're just going to pay for it and get it. But yeah. there are many people who aren't. And the statistics in the case were that there were 33,484 people, um, as of this was 2018, the stats in the case, that were waiting longer than the maximum waiting period recommended under the MSP scheme. And so that's the context in which the charter challenge was brought. Now, the important thing to remember with these cases, and I think perhaps the province may be celebrating their success, because to sort of cut to the chase, they succeeded on the appeal uh, in preventing the, those provisions of the Medicare Protection Act from being held to be unconstitutional. But the really important thing to remember is what goes on in court when there is this kind of a challenge. And the Court of Appeal judges are at pains to point out uh, that what they are doing is not a royal commission. Uh, it's not an assessment as to whether the current scheme is satisfactory, working, a good idea, the best, effective, or any of those things, right? Uh, and they point out that they are that's beyond their mandate, their experience, or their jurisdiction, right? Mm. They are simply there to assess whether the state of affairs, which is clear from the evidence here, very problematic, right? You just shouldn't have 72% of the people who need urgent care for severe pain and you know things that are it may well cause death or permanent functional impairment not getting treated in the required period of time. That's clearly a failure, right? Yeah. Uh, but 
the analysis that goes on with these kinds of legal decisions is not, as the court points out, whether that's a good idea or whether something should be done to fix it, because clearly something has to happen to fix it, right? All the people that are waiting to see a GP or don't have a GP or are waiting that long, that's not satisfactory. But the court is analyzing whether it is so unsatisfactory uh, as to violate the constitutional requirement that we not interfere with life, liberty, and the security of the person. And one of the things we perhaps have slipped into politically uh, is the idea that uh, government policy should be or can be analyzed on the basis of whether it's constitutionally permissible. That's not the right threshold for making a public policy choice, which is really what this is, Mm -hmm. right? Setting policy on that basis, the analogy I've used before is a medical one. It's like that would be like figuring out the amount of a drug that would kill you and then recommending you take just a little less. And work backwards to life, yeah. Work backwards. This is death. We've just backed it off just a bit and go ahead and take that. That's not what we do, right? There should be, you know, this decision is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a conclusion that the healthcare system is functioning as it should. Um, And what happened in the Court of Appeal decision, there was a split. There were three judges who were deciding the case. Uh, Two of the judges found that uh, the uh, there was a deprivation of people's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. We've got all these people waiting, some of whom for very serious things. But two of them found that it wasn't so bad as to not be in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, right? The third judge found that it was not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, but the government could justify it under Section 1, sort of a reasonable limit. Uh, and so... The outcome of this case, right, is to point out that uh, there are very substantial failures in the current system, much of which are, of course, economic, right? You know, when we have the debate about, uh, you know, not being enough GPs, much like everything else in the economy, and doctors are small business people, really, right? We overwhelmingly... They're not employed by the government, which I guess is another public policy question, right? They have to rent their own office and hire their own staff and pay taxes and do all those things, right? Uh, And it's a function of economics, right? It's a matter of this is how if you pay more, you're going to get more of whatever the good or service is that you're hoping for, right? Um, And currently, we have a system which blocks doctors from charging any more effectively, right, for all the services they provide, right? If somebody says, hey, I'd like to be a GP here, but I can't make a go of it and, uh, you know, pay my expenses and uh, afford a place to live for whatever, you know, the sort of the pittance they pay each time somebody goes and sees their doctor, right? It's too low. And we're not getting enough doctors because they're not paying enough. Um, and they block doctors from charging anymore. So that's just what we've that's how we've interfered with the market right it's an economics and market decision we've said effectively this is how much the government will pay for anything we've listed as a covered service under the medical services plan and you may charge no more than that yeah right that's what we've done effectively and the result of it is that we just don't have enough of the service and so you have people that wait way longer than they should or in the case of gps you just don't get one that's what we've done it's not too terribly complicated. We've, as the government does often want to do, we've sort of tinkered with how the market would otherwise function, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are reasons for it, right? We've decided that uh, it's important uh, that uh, 
as a uh, principle or as a goal. We not allow people to uh, get better treatment by paying for it. But the result is that we don't have enough people providing the treatment. We just don't. Um, and so it seems to me that this decision from the Court of Appeal, which is inevitably going to head off to the Supreme Court of Canada, that's clearly where it's going, yes. um, should not be taken as, hey, this is some kind of a government success. Uh, it's a matter of, the. it's a conclusion that, you know, for a split two to one basis, you've squeaked by the constitutional limit of not unconstitutionally interfering with people's right to life, liberty, and the security of the person. And it even interferes with people's right to life. Right. The judges found that, too. Right. Yeah. They say, well, wow. it's hard to get that statistic out, but yeah, it's hard to tease out who exactly or how many people passed away because they were waiting too long. But there is clear evidence here that if you've got, you know, at that least at the time of these statistics, 72 percent of the people with the most severe and acute problems requiring time sensitive and emergency help aren't getting it within the time period you've prescribed. That is a very, very serious failing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so this decision should not be read as, hey, the Court of Appeal has somehow given the thumbs up to how the medical system is functioning in British Columbia. They've been very clear. They are not. Uh, but they have found uh, as sort of an exercise of judicial restraint, it's not so bad as to be unconstitutional. You haven't prescribed so much medicine. It's actually going to kill the patient or constitutionally. You've, you've just squeaked under the line. Uh, and so. I hope the government would read this decision not as somehow uh, a victory, uh, but rather the court pointing out just how serious the failures are with the medical uh, system. The root of those failures being economic failures. We're just not paying enough to get the people we need to do the important work we need done. That's it. It's not that much more complicated. And this Medicare, you know, it's going to always be concerned about government euphemisms, Protection Act, right? is not really protecting uh, anyone from something other than people charging more as the market might demand to ensure that there are enough medical procedures for all the people that are waiting. And the result is very rich people are just going to Seattle and anyone who's not very rich and not able to just drive down there and pay out of their pocket can't pay anymore and can't get any private care here. And so we force everyone who's middle class and below to just wait. Uh, and people who are wealthy leave. Uh, And so that's the model we've adopted. Uh, And as the course pointed out, they're not a royal commission into it, and maybe even that's not the right model. But this should be taken when you read it carefully uh, as an indictment of where we're currently at. Uh, And uh, hopefully it uh, leads to not just uh, efforts to repel the legal challenge uh, in the Supreme Court of Canada, but to fix the system, which clearly has serious problems. All right, let's take our break. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, will continue right after this. And it's Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking, our weekly segment where we take a look at the latest legal affairs and benefit from Michael's insight and analysis. Up next, sentencing I'm reading here, Michael, for another Flying Squad member. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, We were getting some interesting decisions in a lot of them, of course, because there are so many of these Flying Squad members who are being uh, convicted and sentenced for criminal contempt uh, for uh, blocking the logging road contrary to a Supreme Court order. Uh, and so they're interesting to watch because it's uh, there's a large in number and, and there's some general pronouncements in terms of uh, process and principles that I think are worth commenting on. 
Um, this particular decision, which just came out, uh, is another one of these 400 people uh, or so who've been uh, charged with uh, criminal contempt. This was an individual who was 23 years old. He had no criminal record, and he was blocking a road with his arm stuck in a PVC tube called a sleeping dragon. I was going to say that sounds like a sleeping dragon. Yep. I don't know why they call it a sleeping dragon, but anyways, it's an arm shoved in a PVC tube and inserted into the ground. Yes. Kind of unpleasant and also criminal in this case. So uh, this fellow was uh, arrested uh, and he spent, uh, sounds like a couple of days that day and part of the next day in jail uh, and uh, proceeded to trial. He didn't plead guilty. He was convicted. Uh, And so the crown of this case uh, said that he should receive a sentence of seven days in jail, followed by a period of uh, probation with community work service. And so it led to the judge doing the sentencing, having to decide what impact, if any, should the not pleading guilty have to the appropriate sentence, um, which is worth knowing about. Uh, In some places, including, for example, in the United States, uh, pleading guilty or not has a massive impact on what sentence might be uh, imposed. In fact, the way that the U.S. justice system works in many states is there'll be some massive minimum penalty you'd be subject to if you are convicted following a trial. Uh, and so they manage to extract guilty pleas in the overwhelming number of cases to avoid getting, you know, 79 years in jail for whatever it is you're alleged to have done. That's how their justice system, frankly, functions. Trials are few and far between. We don't do that in Canada. Um, and there's never a uh, penalty for somebody choosing to have a trial in Canada. Uh, however, there can be a mitigating effect of pleading guilty. Um, you know, a judge could say, look, I otherwise would have given you X period of time. I'm going to reduce that to some extent to take into account the fact that you've uh, saved us some time, shown that you're remorseful, and maybe you're on the road to rehabilitation. Uh, but here, the judge pointed out that when sentencing for criminal contempt, Uh, A a guilty plea is not even near the first or the top of the uh, charts in terms of what is important. Uh, And the the key principles when sentencing people for criminal contempt include things like denunciation and deterrence. Um, And so the absence of a guilty plea is not really that significant uh, and, and perhaps less significant than it might be for other offenses and other circumstances. Uh, and so here, the uh, judge took into account the time in jail this person spent after he got extracted from his PVC tube um, and uh, concluded that it wasn't necessary to send him to jail for uh, the additional week, as the Crown had suggested. Now, they'd said a week minus the time he spent in police custody. Uh, but instead, the judge has imposed a sentence of 12 months of probation and has required the person to complete 65 hours of community work uh, during the first 11 months. Um, and no doubt the uh, probation, although it's not, it's not set out in the order, is going to prohibit the person from uh, engaging in further behavior of the kind that um, led to the conviction here. Um, so that's what's at least happened to this particular flying squad, flying squ- <laughs> rainforest flying squad member. Um, and another factor which the court does uh, piece in particular heed to is sort of when people have engaged in the behavior, because the idea with these sentences is that they just ramp up over time until people stop engaging in criminal contempt. Yes. Um, and so that's a really important factor. People, you know, the initial people may be treated, will be treated more leniently than somebody who just keeps doing it after it's been made crystal clear to everyone, you cannot do that. 
Um, but in this case, 23-year-old spent a couple of days in police custody after he got extracted. He'll do some community work uh, and uh, hopefully complete his probation and uh, off they go. But there's a whole series of these things that are quite interesting because they're large in number uh, in terms of principles. Absolutely. We've got two minutes left in today's show. Yeah. Final case, also a court of appeal decision, a sentence appeal involving a uh, person who in Vancouver had in possession a small amount of drugs for the purpose of trafficking. The case is significant because the judge imposed a jail sentence, uh, despite the person's um, serious challenges, uh, on the basis that the judge read a previous court of appeal decision as saying that for drug trafficking offenses, jail is necessary absent, quote, exceptional circumstances. Uh, And the Court of Appeal here allowed the sentence appeal from this person who was given uh, a six-month jail sentence for being in possession of a small amount of methamphetamine uh, for the purpose of trafficking uh, and pointed out some of the personal circumstances which the Court of Appeal found should have been exceptional circumstances. Um, And the case is also interesting because it gives some insight into, you know, who's being captured uh, for sort of drug trafficking minor offenses on the street, right? Uh, and most of those people aren't exactly Pablo Escobar. Uh, this person, for example, was a 42-year-old transgendered woman who worked in the sex trade uh, who was dependent on methamphetamine uh, after having suffered a lifetime of trauma uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, who as a first-time offender was found with a small amount of drugs for whom if she went to jail, as the judge uh, had originally imposed, would lose the apartment that she finally got to help her get out of her marginalized life in down, the downtown east side. Mm. And so the uh, Court of Appeal here, I think, mercifully concluded that that is exactly the sort of circumstance which might be an exceptional circumstance that the judge should not have felt bound to send her off to jail, causing a marginalized person to pay, perhaps be pulled back into the sex trade and uh, homelessness. Uh, and so the Court of Appeal has uh, determined that no additional jail is required for her. She'd already served 32 days in jail, and instead she should be permitted to serve a period of probation so that she doesn't lose her apartment uh, and uh, wind up uh, back uh, in the sex trade in the downtown east side. So important, uh, I think, clarification and example from the Court of Appeal of, you know, who is it that is actually being caught up with those kinds of offenses. Very well. Thank you so much. Michael Mulligan is always legally speaking. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great week. All right. You too.